0: It's Stazapod. Before I hop into uh, Q&As today, a little bit of housekeeping and kind of a uh, good news, slightly neutral, slightly bad news. Um, so as many people pointed out, there were problems with Stazapod not showing up in search any longer in Anchor. And uh, some of the back episodes not being accessible, some of the newer episodes not being accessible, and just kind of a small uh, sampling of of episodes being available to select. Um, I couldn't get to the bottom of why that was but it felt to me like a little uh, force obsolescence, if you know what I mean. Like the platform pushing me to do something, trying to induce a certain behavior. Of course this could be paranoid thinking, I fully acknowledge that. Uh, But uh, in sort of investigating this, Anchor kept pushing me and reminding me and giving me alerts that my podcast was not distributed, which I don't want it to be distributed. I don't want it on iTunes. I don't want it on Spotify. I don't want it in all these other channels. I just want to keep it, you know, where it is and keep it for Patreon. Uh, So I wasn't able to determine why suddenly I stopped showing up in search traffic, why uh, you guys had less access to back uh, episodes, but I kept getting this notification that I needed to turn on distribution. Uh, if we want to go down the paranoid rabbit hole, I sort of think that uh, this is because Anchor was acquired by Spotify in uh, 2019, and this is probably part of uh, you know corporate changes that are being made to the platform. In an effort to maybe make more money, Spotify needs every single Anchor podcast to be on every single channel uh, as a means of recouping their $100 million purchase of Anchor. I don't have any information or any proof to back that up. Just a, you know, a sort of uh, cynical take on why I was being coerced into sort of opening up the distribution of the the podcast. So I hit uh, the distribution button and it started to upload Distazopod to all these different platforms. In fact, I'm still getting notifications of these uh, platforms I've never heard of that are now carrying Distazipod. Uh And miraculously, that solved the search traffic problem. That seems to have solved people not being able to access the back catalog with the downside that this is no longer a Patreon-exclusive podcast. And uh, I think that kind of sucks, but uh, maybe it brings in some more listeners and ultimately more patrons. So, might end up being a good thing, but uh, this was not my intention. Now, I do have the option, of course, of just recording podcasts and uh, just for patrons and putting them up uh, only on the Patreon. But as we've all experienced, listening to a podcast on the Patreon app itself is really clumsy, uh, very problematic. And for me, whenever I'm listening to one, whether it's on mobile or desktop, the podcast just simply stops playing, and uh, you know it. They they truly have not sort of made this a bug free platform. So, um, that's where we are. These are no longer sort of exclusive podcasts, and uh, I don't think that really changes anything editorially. Um, but I, you know, I did like the specialness of serving this out to you guys. So. I guess, uh, I'll have to find other digital product to get to my patrons as a special thank you. And we'll just consider this podcast from this day forward, sort of, uh, open to the public and easily accessible. And um, that's about it. So welcome to the Staza pod and uh, let's tackle some questions. One more thing before I hop in, uh, Verge.com has a really excellent interview with Patreon CEO Jack Conte. I posted it on the Discord. Very illuminating interview, um, least of which because I did not realize the man who founded Patreon is uh, the guitarist from a band called Um, They might be known to you guys for doing kind of twee saccharin. uh acoustic style covers of like, um, Beyonce or Britney Spears or stuff like that. They also were in a, um, I think like a Honda commercial. They did the sound to it, the the song for it, um, a few years back and, um, they put out videos that have gotten tens of millions of followers or sorry, views, and they made a couple hundred dollars in return from YouTube. So the creation of Patreon was largely a response to that. And, um, you know, as I've always said, artists have to be sort of agnostic to platforms because they change so quickly. They're good for a while and then they get bad. And I don't know if Patreon will go the distance, if it will always be able to maintain its integrity. But I think the fact that the founder is an artist himself and this platform largely is a reaction to him being hyper-exploited. Um, that gives me a little bit of hope that maybe Patreon can hang around for more than the like, I don't know, 10 year life cycle that you get optimally out of a platform before it really becomes just riddled with ads and, you know, um, unusable. That seems to be kind of this modern, uh, lifespan of these things. So really interesting read. Uh, the link is on the discord or you can just Google the verge.com Jack Conte interview. Um, really, really pretty stellar sort of breakdown of what this present day is, how artists can sort of survive and why I think it is important to kind of not just support my Patreon, but to spread your money out throughout Patreon. I always encourage people cancel a couple streaming services and just find some artists on Patreon and, uh, back them, even if it's just for a dollar a month. Because uh, I think this is where all the really interesting stuff is happening. But anyway. Oh, and I guess I should also throw in, for those who are now listening on all of these uh, distribution channels, maybe iTunes or Spotify or wherever, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Destasio J-E-S-S-E-D-E-S-T-A-S-I-O. And we'll see you there. Now, on the first question. Gabriel Tovar uh, do you have a piece of toy box art that still captivates you to this day? Um, I would say I tend to keep stuff from the 70s and 80s that feature hand-painted uh, artwork. Um, not that the boxes themselves are painted by hand, but that the the sort of graphical image is done by hand. Um, like The first thing that comes to mind is I have a Centurion's uh, Orbital Assault Vehicle kit, whatever it is. And there's just this beautiful rendered painting on there. Um, and I think anything from that era uh, just looks amazing. I mean, you had to sort of sell the toy with uh, the work of an artist, you know, with a painting. And so I tend to gravitate towards and, and want to keep and preserve uh, pieces like that. I do still keep the majority of my backer cards Um, I try to keep at least one backer card from every thing that kind of passes through my door. Uh, largely for just historical significance, um, sometimes there's figures on backer cards that never got made, or there's early prototype photos on the backer card that are different from the final product. Um, and just in the sort of historical aspect, I like to kind of hold on to those things. Moving along to Paul Weyer, any chance we will see more of the Fury Radic color soon? I love that semi translucent peachish. Um, it's not a bad color. Uh, I don't have any current plans for it. Um, I don't know how likely it is to kind of enter back into the rotation, but uh, I'm not opposed if organically I come up with a idea or a character that would utilize that, because I, I do like those semi transparent colors. What are my thoughts on Frank Miller as an artist and a writer? Um, You know, I think he's hugely influential. I I think uh, you can probably blame Quentin Tarantino's rise to fame largely on what books Frank Miller was doing, you know, 10 years prior. I think you can see it all in there. And obviously, the the two have developed a a friendship and a working relationship uh, quite some time after. I was sort of too young for his run on Daredevil, but of the right age when Sin City came on the scene, and that was just sort of, uh, you know, it made your mind explode as a uh, 13 or 14-year-old kid, Uh, maybe even younger, geez. Um, So, you know, I think uh, he's one of the greats. Now, obviously, when we think of Frank Miller today, we think of the diminished quality of his work. But, you know, Todd McFarlane said we're lucky to get any work out of Frank Miller. And I tend to agree with that. You know, um, I believe he nearly died a couple times due to some illness and uh, is still with us today. And so I uh, tend to agree with Todd here. Any work we get out of him is a gift. Moving along to recent contest winner Isaac Carmen. The small character included with the Sen-5 test is great. Some of my favorite figures are those animal accessories like Ripley and Jones or Captain Marvel and Goose. Any possibility of that for toy pizza figures? Uh, Daniel Hartzler chimes in below and says, check out BitFigs. They look like they came straight out of the vector. I would definitely encourage people to check out BitFigs. Those are a nice companion piece to Knights of the Slice and, and Glios in general. I would definitely like to do more little sidekick characters. Um, you know, it's a lot of fun for me, too. Uh, Those were some of my favorite pieces from lines like, you know, Ninja Turtles. You know, Ray Filet had his little uh, fish friend strapped with dynamite. Like, I I I really like those things. Um, The challenge is it obviously adds a lot of cost and a lot of space to tooling. So uh, it can only really work with deluxe figures. And so, um, you know, it's just a it's a bigger consideration than just tooling a normal figure. But um, where the opportunity lies, I I definitely want to take advantage of it in the future. Moving along to Sean Gordon, I just finished watching an interview with with Brian Flynn of Super 7, in which he talks about their upcoming Silverhawks Ultimate Line. A large portion of the interview was about why the figures are the color they are, the lack of vac metal, articulation choices, etc. Basically, he spent most of his time addressing the expectations of his audience and customers. With Knights of the Slice being your brainchild and not being a retro property with the heavy weight of preconceived notions, how freeing is it for you as a toy designer to make new figures? And along those lines, what, if any, expectations or preconceived notions do you have to deal with in Knights of the Slice? Um, this is really good. This is a good question here. So to answer the last part first, what preconceived notions do I have to deal with with Knights of the Slice? I would say the food motif. Right, that is an endless uh, question, endless source of suggestions. People just want to see a hamburger monster. They want to see a hot dog villain. They want, you know, the mind tends to go from A to B. And so, since its inception, some, you know, closing in on seven years ago, uh, people's reaction is usually, where is the ice cream kaiju monster? Why don't you have a villain? that, uh, is gluten-free. You know, this sort of, uh, initial food setting, uh, seems to have permeated people's minds. So I would say that's the biggest preconceived notion I have to deal with is that people, um, you know, they have an expectation that the theme of food, uh, is sort of ever present and saturated in every character choice. I would concede that it is freeing to do your own line and not have to worry about baggage and addressing those things. But I would also say that, um, you know, Knights of the Slice is a harder sell because there's nothing already, there's no foundation there to build off of. So in some respects, revitalizing an old brand is actually uh, a hell of a lot easier than launching a brand new one. And what I have to do in terms of managing expectations is not just answering uh, questions about why I chose this color or why this, this figure doesn't have this accessory or the same stuff that Brian gets. I also have to legitimize, uh, who these characters are, what their significance is and why somebody should buy the line, because that is not a foregone conclusion like it is with something like Silverhawks. Um, I definitely don't envy what Brian has to put up with, because I I do think he deals with some of the most frustrated and fixated customers in all of Toydom, right? Um, The majority of Knights of the Slice, collectors are kind of very creative, very expressive people. You know, even if they're not doing their own art currently, they have aspirations to, or they... Uh, they're here for the process. They want to, you know, learn more about toy making or comic book making or things like that. Like, there is a a very... There's a nicety and a curiosity to Nice of the Slice fans that I don't see in other fandoms. Um, you know, dealing with, like, G.I. Joe fans uh, can be very frustrating. Dealing with Microman fans uh, can be very frustrating. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, he really... Uh, You know, Brian is an impressive guy. He's probably the smartest guy in this space right now. And uh, I know how hard he has to work at these things, so tip the cap to him. Next question up is Charlie Pope. What is my favorite animal? Uh, Do I think that they or other animals could ever get figures like hob. P.S. My favorite figure... My favorite is a frog. Thank you, Charlie. Um, let's see here. Some of my favorite animals are rabbits, are lizards, are ravens. But obviously my favorite all-time animal is... Or are dogs. Um, obviously. Uh could any of these possibly be a figure in the future? Uh, sure. I, I have aspirations to, uh, dip my toe into sort of, uh, you know, animal type figures. I think that'd be a lot of fun. That may be a interesting experiment to, uh, dabble with one day. Um, will Hob ever be like a traditional three and three quarter inch action figure that I don't know. I think, uh, I think our friend is best in the format he's in. Next up from Ryan Resby. So many different sectors have been hit by supply chain problems. The microprocessor issue have has been going on so long that game designers are starting to change how they design games as a result. And computer and hardware companies are starting to design new product on last-generation tech. You mentioned in the past that the independent toy scene might shift towards 3D printing and other local manufacturing innovations if access to plastic continues to be a struggle. What picture does your imagination paint for the bigger for the big dog mainstream industry in a science fiction future timeline in which the supply chain issues get worse for a decade or so how might long-term plastic supply chain issues start to change how toys are designed at the inception stage for big corporations um this is a great question i think about this all the time i think the ultimate reality is big corporations are still going to be able to do whatever they want Um, they're going to feel the pinch, but they're not going to feel the pinch in the same way I do because they have a bigger accumulation of capital and political power. So the Hasbros and the Mattels, they'll always be able to afford plastic manufacturing. If they can't do it in China, because uh, if politically it becomes untenable, or whatever the case may be, they will simply go to Indonesia. They'll go to India. They'll go to Mexico. And they already are making inroads here. All they need is sort of cheap labor to exploit and a developing uh, class of people in which factory jobs are better than farming jobs. Um, So, you know, the world as it is today under this system means that if you have money, you will still experience comfort. You won't have disruption even though everything else will be disrupted. Uh, I think that's the most likely outcome of all of this. Just that the Bezoses of the world and the Musks of the world, uh, they will not experience the same sort of squeeze that everybody else will. Um, so that is sort of my prediction. In terms of what it means for me personally, if I had to stop tomorrow manufacturing in China, um, I think largely my output would be podcast-based, video-based, book-based, pros based it would be things that I can do myself and things that don't rely on plastic Um, 3d printing and accessories and things like that of course would take up some portion of my focus but um, you know I always sort of think of Knights of the Slice as a narrative as a story Uh, and the toys are just uh, adjunct to that so um, you know if you are a small toy maker and you don't really have story, you don't really sell comics, um, you know, you don't really define your characters in a meaningful way, um, I think that the, you know, the future is going to be harder and harder to deal with. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's, uh, that's my prognostication. Moving along, Daniel Hartzler, who, by the way, is one of the uh, main contributors to the Knights of the Slice wiki. You definitely should check it out. Really good job of collecting all the stories and the characters and the releases. Uh, With Marson out of the picture, the time seems right for the Trilobite King's local devotees to come back into focus. Will the Radicalized Snakes ever get Knight or Hackerman reinforcements? Helmitted Soldiers or Hooded Overseer would add quite a bit to that faction. I know you have been averse to direct homages lately, but with this faction that you and Aramax created uh, seems more relevant now to the Knights of the Slice story than ever before. Thank you, Daniel. Um, I will say, uh, attracting more G.I. Joe fans, um, you know, probably not the business I'm in, if that makes sense. Uh, Also, the radicalized snakes are really, like, pretenders. They're sort of Earth humans cosplaying as... Uh, devotees of the Trilobite King they are not sort of a real threat they're just kind of you know it always strikes me when uh, you see these rallies and you see people dressed in camo uh, at rallies it never makes sense to me because if you are sort of there as an operator um, you want to blend in you don't want to stick out (laughs) wearing camo and a bunch of gear Um, ...is exactly the antithesis of, of, you know, uh, how you would approach, you know, an embedded mission like that. Besides the point, um, there will definitely be devotees to the Trilobite King. They are not going to be the Radicalized Snakes, um, and we're going to meet them very soon. Sean Denny, I was appreciating Hyper Eel yesterday, easily number two in my top five Night of the Slice figures... Can we expect any painted Hyper knights in 2021 as drops or in Action Figure of the Month Club? Well, again, since we're on all these bloody platforms now, like Spotify and iTunes, maybe I should mention the Action Figure of the Month Club, which uh, you can sign up for on Patreon.com slash Jesse Stasio. $30 a month gets you one surprise action figure. But guess what? We're currently sold out, so this live read means nothing right now. You can't get into the Action Figure of the Month Club. You can just sit there and watch, longingly, waiting for a slot to open. Maybe in July. Um, can we expect any painted hyper nights? Yes. Yes, we can. And I do think... I, I really, really, really want to do an Action Figure of the Month month that is dedicated to Knight. And I know what that design is. I already have it on order. It hasn't arrived yet. Um, I don't know when that month will be... Might be December, who knows? But uh, I do at least have one hyper night planned out for the club. So if you're a year member, or you're just gonna continue on at your slot, you're definitely gonna have at least one hyper night fully painted. And um, I tend to think people are gonna like this one. Back with more translucent questions, Matthew Paquette, one of the good G.I. Joe collectors, by the way, not one of the bad ones. <laughs> Uh, Any plans to release translucent versions of Radek? The only thing close to it at this time was the Fury Radek at his launch. Um, I think yes, over a long enough timeline, but I don't have anything chambered currently. Uh, There was a real glut of Radek late last year. And so I'm just waiting for him to kind of appreciate again as a character. I also have to get his next narrative chunk out there. You know, he needs something big to do to get people excited about it. So um, I would say there will probably over the span of a couple years be translucent radix. I just don't have any right at this moment. Next up is Matt Reed. I noticed in the description for Survenger, that he hunts down anyone related to the Trilobite Kingdom, so Golden Richard, who comes from there, is in his crosshairs. Do you plan to expand on this part of the story at some point, i.e. the conflict between these characters, Golden Richard's backstory, etc., or is this just something that is likely to be left open-ended? Well, I think, you know, I would love to get back to all these story prompts eventually, but largely that's dictated by kind of my schedule and my workload, and The urgency of narrative that's tied to future drops, if that makes sense. So uh, I'm sort of not at liberty to chase down every story idea that I have because there's like very significant writing I have to do in order to um, sort of supplement future collections and and things that demand uh, my time and attention. I do like, you know, um, sort of offering up prompts to you guys that are open-ended that may influence, you know, your photo dioramas or your customizations or, you know, your sort of play patterns. And, and that's largely what these sort of fragmentary story pieces are for. It, it's a prompt for you guys to kind of explore creativity and, and, um, you know, figure out how these situations, how these cliffhangers get resolved. Moving along to the next question from Lance Tomimoto, this is a very prescient question. What time do I get up in the morning? Well, as I am currently trying to record this, I am festooned by dogs. I have one tiny little shivering dog here who's very cold and I'm attempting to sort of warm him up under a blanket. And I have another larger dog who is demanding that I pet her and not pet the other dog. And uh, I'm doing all this with my free hand while I'm recording this podcast. So, that is to say, I get up in the morning when my dogs wake up. There's no other option. <laughs> they will not let me sleep in. Uh, typically, that means 6 o'clock, 6.30, 6.45. Uh, if I'm lucky, every now and then, they sleep in until about 9.30. And uh, those are glorious days for sure. But typically, they're up when... It starts to get bright out and they want to go outside. They want to be fed breakfast, etc., etc. et cetera. And um, I have no power to uh, combat them. So when they decide it's time to get up, that's typically when I get up. I know what you're thinking. For somebody who works for themselves, who uh, has eked out a very minor ability to be supported by his art and could conceivably sleep all day. And stay up all night uh, I indulge in none of that <laughs> um, so it is kind of a waste of this lifestyle in that I, I would say I'm more regimented working for myself than I ever was working for anybody else so uh, you know it, it's not a uh, grass is greener situation moving along to Eric Valverde what is the status of the techno hoods he is uh, referencing these um, mechanical bad guys shown in the childhood art from the recent Scarlet century uh, figure. Uh, as in is this just Kitty fodder from the bat from back in the day or possibly something you want to work into a storyline, even the toy line or maybe ideas you had for them have transitioned onto other characters. Um, so in that Scarlet century illustration, if you want to call it that, He's fighting the techno hoods who are just uh, look like basement variety, uh, you know, uh, NPCs on a 8-bit video game level. Uh, I, I can't say there's a bigger idea or a bigger notion there, um, but these ideas do tend to get recycled and, and reused. Um, so, yeah, I think this is just largely a, a throwaway thing. I, I think they're interesting. You know, maybe they will pop up at some point in the future. But um, always happy when people notice things like that. Moving along to Jeremy Price, have I ever thought about adding another tier to Patreon, perhaps an art slash story focused tier? I very well might be an outlier, but my favorite part of being a member has been the comic books, the short stories, the digital downloads, and the prints. I love the figures too, but I'm a bit more selective in that aspect, wherein I purchase every story, every book, every print. I would love to fully support that more if it were an option but I totally get if that is a pipe dream. Thank you, Jeremy. I, I could definitely use a couple more people like you. I think the, um, you know, the comics definitely hold a smaller audience and I'm always happy uh, when that gets expanded because that those are the parts that really excite me. Um, I'm not sure that adding another tier gets you what you want, right? If I'm reading this correctly, you want more stories, you want more comics, that's your bag. Um, The problem is there's really only me to sort of spearhead this stuff. So even if I had another tier that's, let's say, I don't know, a dollar or ten dollars, it still ends up being me having to do it. And all that money, regardless of the tier, goes into the same pot and finances the same uh, artists that I use, finances the same printing of comic books, things like that. So um, it, it wouldn't necessarily help i mean everybody that's a patron is helping tremendously they're all contributing and all that money gets put together and from that money uh obviously i finance the comics and i create the action figures and i do stuff like that i think that the um the turning point may be when i can bring in somebody just on comics and story and things like that now i I have Gavin Mackey working on a retainer. So he kind of pops in and out and does the comics that need to be done. Um, I could imagine a scenario where the Patreon is, I don't know, three or four times the size it is now. And I can have somebody like that full time just focusing on comics and story. And that can be, you know, a much bigger output for us um, in these future years. You know, there conceivably there could be like one postcard comic a week. Uh, but i have to get to that stage um where you know the patreon is at a really great size i've been able to hire part-time help for the workshop which is amazing so that means i don't have to print out labels and stick them on boxes um you know the the sort of steps beyond that are definitely getting somebody on the comic side of things or on the storytelling side of things in a bigger capacity than than just um gavins sort of part-time subcontractor status so uh, it's definitely a goal of mine it's something I would like to expand I love doing the comics and telling the stories I have endless amounts of stories you know sometimes I can only share what I can conceivably get done in time for a drop but uh, you know these things run a lot deeper and and there's a a whole well that seems to be never ending of uh, different stories and, and comics I'd like to do so Hopefully, if we uh, keep up this great pace on Patreon, I'll get to explore that more. If you want to help move things along, maybe figure out one or two people in your friend group that really would love to be clued into Knights of the Slice and our live streams and our drops and our comics. And uh, just help spread the word because even just picking up one or two uh, new people, it tends to have a ripple effect. So uh, that's the sort of long-term goal And uh, I think with your help, we can achieve that. Continuity is for wimps, said George Lucas. This is from a question by John Emmett. Uh, This is a quote from Dave Filoni. Mandalorian fame. Lucas was infamous for ignoring his own fiction's continuity whenever he felt like it, much to the consternation of his fans, particularly the expanded universe in which he had no love for. But I digress. How important is continuity to you in your writing? I can understand ignoring continuity for the sake of a good story. Star Trek 2 is a good example of this, in my opinion. Interested in your thoughts? Um, I think... At a certain point, continuity is impossible. And let me give you a macro and a micro example of this. Uh, For me, a micro creator, you know, very, very small, very lean uh, production in which we're telling stories, creating characters, making comics. um, It's a lot for one person to juggle. And so continuity inevitably Uh, gets mixed up for me, whether I can't remember uh, a character's name or his alias or his race or things like that. Um, I'm sure there are instances where I've mixed up things on the continuity, and I'm sure that uh, in the future, things will become so complex, I, I just can't keep track of it and end up sort of making errors and things like that, or... I have a sale coming up for an important figure and I really need him to be of this faction even though he was previously of another faction and uh, some fudging might happen. So for me as an independent creator, continuity is sort of an impossible goal. One, because I can't keep track of everything myself. And two, because things are moving so quickly, I'm writing at such a fast pace, uh, inevitably there's gonna be sort of uh, anachronistic things that happen. On the macro level for somebody like a uh, Disney or you know, even George Lucas himself, there are going to be requirements of profit that mean you have to throw out continuity. And uh, you know, there's no better example of this than the constant rebooting of franchises. They sort of have to uh, get rid of continuity because these film franchises, or whatever the franchise may be, they wane at a certain point. They start making less money for the powers that be. And so the reboot, the refresh, the soft relaunch, that becomes the anecdote to not making the same amount of money as you were making off of something like a Star Trek, for example. So, um, you know, I I have a hard time pointing to something that's been completely faithful to its own mythology and continuity in every aspect. I I think it is sort of a perfect goal and, and therefore is going to be ever elusive. Sorry, my dog keeps barking if, uh, he's not in constant human contact. And, uh, so I just kind of, you know, I, I try to write in a way that honors what I've written previously and causes the least amount of disruption. But, uh, I am by no means a sort of absolutist or perfectionist about maintaining everything canonically as it's been laid out um i think ultimately if an idea is that compelling uh as a creator you should tear down what you've built you know uh that makes for much more interesting sort of stories let's take for example the recent uh alexander postcard comic right uh originally these were going to be two separate releases They were not going to be, these two variant-style figures were not going to be tied together. I guess this is getting into spoiler territory, but enough time has passed. So uh, the comic sort of alludes to the Prototype Knight being a clone of Alexander. Now, these were two separate characters entirely up until about a month or so ago when I decided to thread this plot together. Um, Continuity-wise, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but it does now make sense given the new context and the new story. So, um, you know, I I think continuity is a good guiding light, but ultimately you should blaze your own path uh, with the end goal of just telling the best story you can. Now heading over to some Facebook questions. We got Chris Solis. If you have to stick to one hobby for the rest of your life, what would it be? This is a very interesting question. Obviously I have many hobbies. I think variety is the spice of life. I guess I would stick to just making comics because, um, one, it's extremely cheap to do if you're just going to sort of do black and white photocopied comics yourself. Um, It is limitless in certain aspects, like there's no budget involved in uh, drawing a helicopter versus drawing just a man in a coffee shop. I can, you know, let my imagination run wild. Uh, I would also, hopefully, as part of this hobby, consuming comics is still a viable thing. Um, I would definitely, uh, if I had to really sacrifice down to just one, I I think that would be the one that I would stick with. Allison Johnson asks, did you ever uh, cast in resin in the beginning to get the idea out of your head just to see how something looks? Or do you go straight to manufactured plastic? Um, Yeah, there's quite a deal... A great deal of resin casting that happens now sometimes we're making a resin copy of a sculpt sometimes we're printing in resin using a 3d printer but yeah there are a lot of stages um, and a lot of iterations of each character prior to it being manufactured in plastic Um, I think I've shared some of these on the patreon but there's you know there there can be a dozen different looks and takes on a character in resin prior to the final plastic version. I think at some point I'll uh, do a comparison of Sen 5 when that production is complete and show everybody just how radically different all the uh, various stages of this character have been over the years. Cliff Uchida, were there times that you felt creatively or mentally burnt out? If so, how do you push through and keep continuing your creative endeavors? Uh, I think I went... I touched on this a little bit in a recent Dastaza pod regarding creativity and, and mental blocks and stuff like that, um, basically, yes, I get burned out creatively all the time, uh, you know, earlier this year, I was really, really feeling completely, uh, burned out uh, and Knights of the Slice and, you know, this entire project, uh, I sense feel much rejuvenated, I've taken, you know, I, I went on a, uh, a brief vacation, I shut the store for a week. um, And I also was able to get some part-time help as I mentioned earlier. So I feel much better about it. I I think what I always go back to when I feel creatively burnt out or or don't know how to quite push through uh, is just the daily sketchbook. And even if I'm not sketching anything, I'm just writing down what the weather is like, but I do it every single day. Uh, I think that's a really great way to be regimented in documenting uh, your day, and hopefully that you know putting pen to paper leads to you sketching or doing some concepts or opening your mind a little bit. I think that is the one key thing that has always worked for me. I I, I can't say it's guaranteed to work for everybody else, but um, you know keeping a sketchbook, keeping your thoughts outside of your head and, and down on the paper. That can really be a game changer, I feel. Then, like a hive mind, we got a question from Gabe Tovar about favorite illustration and toy box art, which I think I answered in our very first question of this Distazopod, so respectfully, I'm gonna skip that one, and I'm gonna call this Distazopod done. This was great, you guys had some fantastic questions, so I thank you for that. Uh, What's coming up next? I don't know. (laughs) I'll keep you guys posted. Thank you to everybody for ordering the Harbor Noir Heavies drop. That was huge for us. That was a really, really big successful drop, and I truly appreciate it. Uh, All those orders are now bundled up, and they're waiting to be picked up by USPS. They should be on their way to your homes in short time, so that's fantastic. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for being patrons, and uh, the only thing left to say is pizza out.